Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you. You are our strength, and you are our Redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You guys can have a seat. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. How many of you guys remember that lyric from R.E.M.'s classic song, right? Yeah, there we go. There's some hands, yeah. Uh, I love that song. It's, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek. If you uh, listen or read the rest of the lyrics of that song, you realize it's, a, it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek lyric because everything's not fine. It's the end of the world as we know it. Everything's not fine, but... Um, uh, but we might as well say it is because we don't really know what to do about it. I mean, that's kind of the gist of that song. Now, how do we live when the world is ending? That question has really um, sparked the modern imagination, right? I mean, pop culture loves end-of-the-world scenarios. Does it not? I mean, think about all the movies and TV shows. You guys ever heard of, 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 of a little show called The Walking Dead? Right? I mean, that, that whole show is about what it means to live at the end of the world. Uh, going back a few years to some classic films of my youth Terminator, yes. Mad Max, yes. Dare I even mention it? The Kevin Costner career killer, 1995's Waterworld. You guys don't even want to admit that you saw that movie. It's so bad. It's laughably bad. Um, Pulp culture is in love with end-of-the-world scenarios. Popular news media also is in love with end-of-the-world scenarios. We're confronted with a lot of opinions every day that amount to the fact that the world as we know it is coming to an end either because... The wrong person's going to get elected, or the polar ice caps will melt, or China, or something. Well, we can, we can pray. We can pray. Well, the Lord's on our side, absolutely. And that's really what this is going to be about, I hope. I suspect that for all the exaggerated and sensationalistic rhetoric about what we should do and what's happening, that some of those opinions actually are not all wrong. I think the world as we know it will indeed come to an end for one reason or another. Think about this with me for a minute. Just as it did for those that lived through the horrors of the world wars, the world as they know it came to an end as they knew it. Or how about even just like more benign things, those that saw automobiles go mainstream, right? The world as they knew it came to an end. Or, or those dealing with the student debt crisis. And, 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 and that might seem funny, but uh, as somebody dealing with that, it's not a joke, <laughs> right? Uh, the, the world as we knew it, it came to an end uh, in, in many ways in 2008 for those of us that were just graduating college at that time. And on and on it goes, right? The world as we know it is always, in a sense, coming to an end. And so we're always, so to speak, 
on the edge of the apocalypse. That's kind of a sensational title for today's sermon, but, uh, but we're always kind of there because we're always at the, the edge of a, of a shift, of change in our lives. Like our world is always coming to an end in some way or another. And no matter what, that change is going to bring some uncertainty. That uncertainty is going to bring some fear. And sometimes those threats are genuine. So how do we live? How can we live when it is the end of the world as we know it, whether or not it's the ultimate end? How do we live? I think the witness of the scriptures is that we can live a life of fearless and faithful service to one another and to the world. That's how we can live, a life of fearless, faithful service to one another and to the world. So let's take a closer look at the passage that we read in Luke's gospel, chapter 21. And what Jesus is doing here, beginning in in verse 5, is prophesying the destruction of the temple. And so the the disciples are there, they're uh, talking about this building, and it says they were speaking about how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. So it, it looked beautiful and amazing things were happening there. See, for these people this temple was probably the greatest building they had ever seen. And probably they really saw it as a crown jewel, if not the crown jewel of human achievement. This beautiful temple, these amazing things that are happening here. The symbol of the glory of the Lord. And really that's, that's what it was. It represented the perpetual dwelling of God with his people. And so it was the absolute center of Jewish religious life. So the disciples are there. They're talking about this. And Jesus is saying, it's all going to fall apart. It's going to be taken apart. And for them, I mean, this idea of the destruction of the temple absolutely was the end of the world as they knew it. They could hardly imagine a world without the temple. And perhaps we can relate. Well, that's just a little thought exercise this morning. What's the temple for us in our own context today? We can sub in anything that might seem like our world is falling apart. Right? For some, it's America. Right? America represents the crowning achievement of humanity. And its laws, the perpetual guiding presence of God in the world. That's how it is for a lot of people. For others... It might be uh, an orienting symbol of, 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 of our life, might be the Protestant evangelical movement. Our, our temple could even be the institutions of the Anglican communion. So the idea of our national life in the United States crumbling into immorality and chaos for our religious affiliation, our tribe, Protestant evangelicalism in a a lot of circles, for that to be kind of mocked and undermined and and co-opted, and for the very structure of our church, the Anglican communion, to be as fractured and fragile as it is today could very easily ignite fear in us. Because it's a cause for uncertainty. Just as the idea of the temple in Jerusalem being destroyed probably caused the disciples to be a little afraid. But for Jesus, whatever it is that's being torn apart, the fact that that's going away is not 
an occasion for fear. It's not an occasion for fear, but it is uh, a moment of warning. A moment of warning. He's careful and quick to remind his disciples not to be led astray by those claiming to be Christ, ushering in the true end of the world and the beginning of the next. He urges them to be cautious and to stay focused on the truth. So here's the thing. We, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. We don't know when the absolute end of the world is. It almost doesn't matter because, like I said, our world's always ending. So what do we do? And Jesus doesn't tell his disciples to either try to prevent or usher in the end of the world. He says there to be faithful witnesses to the truth of what God has done, is doing, and will do in Christ Jesus. And they're to trust the Holy Spirit for what to say. That was their job. That's our job. That's our vocation in the world as it is ending around us all the time. And you notice that this will not make the disciples popular. Jesus is pretty honest about this. Jesus says to his disciples in verse 17, you will all be hated for my name's sake. And indeed they were rejected by their own people and their beloved temple that symbol of God's abiding presence, that center of their communal life together, that actually was destroyed, right? Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans, right? It was all taken over. So if that could happen to them as followers of Christ, I think similar things could happen to us. Well, where's the good news in that, Father Nathan? Come on, man. Now, there is good news here. There is good news here, and we're going to get there. But, but for now, let's just simply observe that the main task given to the disciples living on the edge of their own apocalypse is to be faithful witnesses. Faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ to the world. That's part one of what faithful service looks like. Being faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ to the world. Okay. I think we get to part two in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 13. And we see here that some in the Christian community haven't been pulling their, their own weight. So Paul says that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Ouch, Paul. In other words, there were people in the community that instead of contributing to the needs of all, weren't really doing anything. But they were kind of standing around telling other people what they should be doing. Those are just the most annoying kinds of people, right? Like when you get too many cooks in the kitchen. Um, now to really understand what's happening here, though, we have to understand how Paul views the church, what the implicit background is here. Paul addresses the community here, as he often does in his letters, as brothers and sisters. We take that for granted today so easily and quickly. But these aren't just nice words for Paul. All indications are that the early church truly lived as households often do and as healthy households do, which is in a pattern of financial interdependence. And we know from Acts that the church voluntarily pooled their resources and gave to everyone as there was need. Paul says in verse 10, then if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Okay, look, 
I want to get this out on the table here. Paul has nothing to say here about national welfare systems. That is not what this is about. Okay? This is about the natural consequences of not caring about the people around you when you're supposed to be living as the family of God, as a real family. Right? The principle in play here isn't, if anyone is not willing to work, let him starve. Like, that's not what's happening here. This is similar to how I, as a parent, might let my child go without dinner if she refuses to eat what's on her plate or doesn't do her chores, right? Does that make sense? So th- this is about connecting a destructive and selfish behavior with its natural consequences for the good of the family. The point here is that the Christian community, which is truly living at the edge of the apocalypse, all this stuff is about to go down in just a few years. The point is, is the way that they're to live together is as a family and not just kind of a nice lip service family, but a real family that that depends on each other, that has obligations to each other. And for, the, for better or for worse, like our church community today in the United States especially just isn't as financially inter, interdependent as the early family of faith. And I'm not making a judgment on that today. I'm just saying that the fact is, is we don't share our resources in exactly the same ways. But nevertheless, we're no less a family. We're no less a family. And we still have obligations to each other as such, even financial obligations to each other. Paul has nothing to say about national welfare systems, but he does have something to say about how we treat each other, about how we care for each other in here. So it is right, godly, and scriptural that we depend on and support one another. So what does this have to do with how we're to live when the world as we know it is ending? Uh, Paul says this, this is his encouragement in verse 13. Uh, we are not to grow weary in doing good. We're not to grow weary in doing good. And it might be tempting for some of us because not everybody's going to take that seriously. Just like in Thessalonica, not everybody was taking that, that uh, idea of church as family seriously. It's tempting for some of us when people are kind of taking advantage of us and, and, and when the world around us is falling apart and there's all this uncertainty and fear. It's so tempting to just give up living as a real family in Christ and to just withdraw into ourselves. And just look out for ourselves. And in frustration, it just might be easier to put, our, to put ourselves in, in the shoes of the, of the busybodies for a minute. In our frustration, it might be easier to simply do our own thing while telling others what they should be doing. That never happens in the church, right? <laughs> right? The call here is to contribute to the gospel work of the whole community by being faithful in how God has called you to serve. The the call and the encouragement here is don't grow weary. Don't just do your own thing, but keep serving other people. In other words, the church does not exist only to serve your needs, even though that's what I've been talking about, serving each other's needs. Absolutely, it exists to serve your needs, but also it exists so that you can serve the needs of others. And so we don't want to grow weary in doing that good work of serving each other in the church. The church exists as a real family that supports one another. A real family that supports one another in concrete, tangible ways, even when it takes a lot of effort. Even when not everybody is pulling their own weight. 
So uh, a life of faithful service looks like being a faithful witness to Jesus. Looks like not getting caught up in whether or not this is the, quote, real end of the world or not. It looks like living together in community as a true family with Jesus at the center. And I'll be honest because Jesus was really honest. So I just want to follow him in this and just say, guys, this is risky stuff. This is risky stuff. To focus more on witnessing than prepping. To speak of Jesus more than world-changing political policies. And that stuff's not going to make you popular with a whole lot of people. In fact, people will accuse you because you're more concerned about talking about Jesus than talking about politics or whatever. People will accuse you of not caring about other people. They will accuse you of being naive because you keep serving others even when it really, really hurts, even when it's not convenient. People will say, if you really put the kingdom of God in the center of your life and not the kingdoms of the world, people will say you're not doing your civic duty. It's just about every, uh, in just about every post-apocalyptic movie, think about this with me for a minute. The depiction, think about Mad Max, uh, Book of Eli, you guys remember that one? That's kind of a weird one for Christians to watch because there's a lot of killing uh, around the Bible. Uh, the, the depiction is one of social breakdown. It's what happens at the end of the world. And, and various people, they join up in the camps or, or tribes and, and they fight each other for limited resources and the right to be in power. Now, all of that gets um, exaggerated in the end of the world scenario. But let's be honest, that's, that's just the world that we see around us, is it not? So every time there's, there's a, a major change in society, we're going to see that happen. So it's like every day. And here in America, it gets really bad every four years or so. When we commit to being a true spiritual family, though, and we take a step back from all of that, and we say we're not going to live that way. We're going to live according to how Christ calls us to live and how the Holy Spirit is, is bringing us together. So we, we actually commit to being a spiritual family that brings people together that should otherwise be enemies. Like that's, that should be what happens here. That's not going to make people happy, <laughs> right? If we have a bunch of Republicans and Democrats, I mean, just to bring it home here, and we say, well, we're going to worship together and work through some stuff together, that's not going to make you a very popular uh, church, right? If you say we're going to have the rich and the poor and we're actually going to spend time together and actually love one another, that's going to be really difficult. And it's not going to make you popular with people around you. It's not going to make sense to the, the world ar around us. We're never going to make any one side happy. In other words, if the church is really doing what the church is supposed to do, and if we really live the way we're supposed to live, we're really going to make everybody kind of mad. We're not going to make any side happy. And we haven't even trust or, or touched, excuse me, we haven't even touched on the relational risk even within, within the body of Christ as we really become vulnerable with each other. That's risky. And it will not be without pain because when we depend on each other, we're going to be vulnerable. Um, vulnerability requires 
the possibility of being hurt. And, and because the Holy Spirit's still working on all of us, sometimes we're going to hurt each other. That's, that's really hard. So this is risky stuff to live as God calls us to live. The, the worst thing, though, that we can do is to give up. And that's why Paul says, don't grow weary of doing good. When we are faced with genuine threats, the worst thing anybody can do is just adopt this every man for himself mentality, which is just so prevalent, right? In R.E.M.'s song about the end of the world, going back to R.E.M., world serves its own needs. Don't misserve your own needs. World serves its own needs. Listen to your heart bleed. In other words, the world's going to hell, so you better look out for yourself. Because nobody else will. It's kind of a sad song. It's got a chipper tune. It's the end of the world as we know it. I feel fine. But it's, it's, it's sad. It's dark. The Bible calls us as Christians not just to, to have like a chipper tune. <laughs> right? It calls us something real, something deeper. The Bible calls us as Christians to to a better way. God in Christ calls his people to serve the world and each other. And can we really live this way, though? I mean, I've, I've described all of this. I've laid out the risks. Is it just too much, though? That's a that's a legitimate question. I hope you're asking it. Is it too much? Is it really possible? Isn't there just too much to be afraid of? Aren't we just too weak to do that? Jesus said in Luke 21, we just read it. Juliet read it to us. Or sorry, Dick and Tim read it to us here. Some of you, they will put to death. Some of you, they will put to death, but not a hair on your head will perish. What does that mean? <laughs> Wait a second. Jesus, I thought you said we're going to die. And now you're saying our... Not a head on our, 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 our hair on our head is going to perish. What a promise. And what makes that promise possible is endurance. He says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. In other words, what makes this promise possible? How can you live even though you die? What makes that possible is abiding in eternal life. What makes this possible is that Jesus gave his life out of love for yours and mine on the cross. And yeah, it was a horrible way to die. And not just because of the cruelty of the crucifixion. I mean, that was really terrible. But it was horrible because in some way we don't fully understand. Jesus took all the power of sin and the ultimate consequences of sin, which isn't just dying once, but it's eternal death. Somehow he took that on himself. And as painful as that must have been for him, he defeated sin there, including that power of eternal death. And so he proved that he did that by rising again, by sending us his spirit, his Holy Spirit as a guarantee that we too, though we die, yet shall we live. Do you remember this? When Martha says to, to Jesus, when, when uh, Lazarus dies, you, when Jesus, she, she says, uh, Jesus says uh, to her, um, even though uh, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the resurrection and the life. And even though uh, you die, uh, he die, he, he yet shall live. 
I know I stumbled over that for a minute there. But do you, do you get the, the, the promise there? The promise that even though we follow Christ and we, we, we live into the kingdom in such a way that we don't survive, we're still going to survive. And we're going to thrive by abiding in that eternal life. This is the power of God's love. And this was prophesied hundreds of years prior. Right? We read it in Malachi chapter 4. Yes, all sin will be burned away. That includes yours and mine. All sin will be burned away. Yet for those of us who fall in the name of Jesus, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. So you see, no matter what's happening in, in the world around us, now we know that the temple, the real temple, the abiding presence of God, the, the symbol around which we orient our, our world, the greatest thing that we can possibly imagine the real temple is the risen Christ. And he cannot be torn down. He cannot be destroyed. See, Satan tried that like 2,000 years ago and was defeated in the process. Death died in the process of trying to tear that temple down. So as long as Jesus is at the center of our lives, and, and not just as individuals, but at, at the center of our, of our common life together. No circumstance can bring us ultimate harm. Doesn't mean we won't suffer in the moment. But no circumstance can bring us ultimate harm because his eternal life becomes our eternal life. Believing this is the way to live without fear. Believing this is the way that we can actually follow through and respond to this call of God on our lives. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave unites us to him and to each other in a love that cannot be destroyed. And so get this, we too become the dwelling place of God on earth. And so it's, it's here with one another in the presence of God that we can begin to enjoy a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth and the, that very good ending that God has in store for all of creation. We get to experience that even, even as we suffer sometimes here in this moment when we put Jesus at the middle uh, of it all. You know, some people consider Phoenix, I'm gonna, some people consider Phoenix to be an apocalyptic city. Have you ever heard this? Phoenix as an apocalyptic city because we face so many environmental and social challenges that, that the long-term future of Phoenix is really uncertain. People wonder, are we still going to be able to live here in 50 years? It's been called the most unsustainable city in America. And of course, Sunny Slope, which is deep here in the heart of Phoenix, embodies many of these challenges. And why am I telling you this? I know I'm going long today, guys. Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Years ago, Year, years ago, I had a dream, and, and I'm finally, I, I am finally wanting to share this with you after, I don't know, it's maybe been five years or so since I had this dream. And I don't make a lot of dreams, so I'll, I'll submit it to you for your judgment, and we'll see what you think. But I was standing on top of North Mountain. I was looking out over Sunny Slope, and there was a huge earthquake, but there was no destruction and then these huge rolling billows of dark smoke just came from, from the east and the west and covered our little valley here. 
And at the base of North Mountain, like I couldn't quite see the source, this, this beacon of fire-like light shot up from the valley floor. And I thought maybe it was a fire, but there was no destruction and nothing was being consumed. I've, I've been deserting this vision, like I say, for some years now, and, and, and I uh, uh, submitted it to uh, my spiritual director and to uh, Father John, our founding pastor. I sent him an email, and I'm like, I have no idea what to do with this dream, but it was so real. And after a lot of years of thinking about it, I think, I'm pretty confident that our church is not the light. That our prayers are not the smoke and that our songs are not the earthquake. I've come to believe though that all those signify the mighty, victorious, justifying, redeeming work of God that will happen here with or without you and me because God is going to renew the face of this earth no matter what. The point, though, is that God is on the move in this place. And you know that I don't think our address here is an accident. Our little Anglican church has been planted deep here in the heart of Phoenix, not because we are necessary to the plan of God. But somehow, in His grace and His mercy, it has pleased Him to make us a part of His plan. He has chosen us out of love to join him in his renewing work. He's chosen us to proclaim the light of Christ here. To pray fervently for revival here. To shout praises to our king in this place that will be heard throughout the neighborhood. And he's given us this vocation of laying down our lives in fearless, faithful service in the name of Jesus because of what Jesus did on the cross for each other in this place for the sake of Sunny Slope. Now, I believe God has been and is calling us today in this moment to an even more faithful witness, to a deeper dependence on one another, a deeper dependence on his spirit, and that this is a gift and an honor from the Lord. But listen to me, brothers and sisters. And I say that, brothers and sisters, the same way Paul does, Paul does, because you guys are family, and I love you, and I want to say what is true. This will not happen. We will not be able to join God in this if the love of God is not our very life. And what I mean by that is, is it's not enough for your Christianity to be an accessory to your life instead of the absolute core of who you are. Your faith is personal, of course, but it is not private. A necessary fruit of believing the gospel is sharing the gospel. And so it's not enough for us to just be content that we have Jesus and that we're saved. And we'll just come to church and say, thank you, God, every Sunday and remain in fear about sharing that with our family and our friends and our neighbors. It's not enough 
for our worship together for this gathering. I'm talking about this specific gathering on Sunday mornings, which is the core activity of the church gathered to worship Him, to worship God. It's not enough for this to be an optional activity. It is not enough for our fellowship here and also for our fellowship outside of Sunday morning too, for our friendships with one another to be something that we squeeze in around other commitments. If we want to join with God, squeezing in Sunday morning worship, squeezing in, checking in on each other, hanging out together is not enough. If church is something uh, on a whole, if church is something that we're just squeezing in, we're squeezing out the Holy Spirit. Now we have to let go of a lot of fear of missing out on other things. And I get that. Trust me, I get that. I struggle with it too. I have kids too. I have kids that have activities. I have sleep that I want to get too. I get it. I even have other relationships too. It's hard. And I'm not saying I always, I always do it in the best way. But I've come to believe that if we're going to join God in this, we have to make the love of God and that love as we experience it together absolutely core to our lives, our daily lives. And we have to let go of that fear of missing out on all those other things and, and, and trust. And it, man, it's a step of faith and I get it. Trust that the Lord has riches for us, that he has riches for us and our missional vocation to each other and to our neighborhood that we cannot even grasp in the moment, that there are joys to be laid hold of that we can't even grasp. What I'm saying is that for us to witness and serve as God has called us together, we have to trust that the love of God in his Holy Spirit will see us together through every trial, every pain, every roadblock, every relational rift, every financial burden as we faithfully proclaim the gospel out of love for our neighbors out there and as we grow in Christian love for each other in here. Last thing I'm going to say, this yeah, that's the last thing I'm going to say. Uh, we, this isn't something that can be programmed. I mean, we can make some spaces for it. We can have some connect groups. We can have some fellowship meals. We can schedule this Sunday morning service. But it's not something that can be programmed. It's something that we have to commit to. It's something we have to pray for. It's something we have to want it's something that we have to receive. And it's something that we have to cultivate over time. Believing and receiving the love of God. This is the main, the main point, guys. Believing and receiving the love of God in Jesus is the only way to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's only by the Holy Spirit that we can do anything at all. Especially survive the end of the world as we know it. So, let our prayer be together. Come, Holy Spirit, and let's mean it. Because with him, we can do and will do anything and everything that our Lord Jesus calls us to do.
We'll serve the world and each other faithfully and without fear. Amen.